Please turn with me to Luke chapter 19 and verse 11. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Start a new series this morning, and this week Blake and I were talking a little bit about uh, the series, and he related a story to me uh, about his family, one of his family members, particularly his brother Matt. Apparently about 15 years ago, Matt bought $5,000 worth of stock in Apple. Let me just tell you, uh, it's a smart family. Blake is a very smart guy. His brother Matt, very smart guy. He bought $5,000 stock in Apple. Uh, A few years later, he sold that stock made $1,000. It's not a, a bad return. He was about to go to law school. He needed money for tuition, so he sold his $5,000 stock, made $1,000, pretty good return on investment. Only problem was about two months after he sold, Apple unveiled the iPod. Now, if he had held on to that stock, in today's market value, he would have $500,000. Problem was, he didn't know the future. That's the problem with investing in stocks, right? And trying to time the market. But I feel very confident that if he had known the future, he probably would have just skipped law school altogether. He probably would have sold everything that he had, invested all of it in Apple stock. He probably would have told his family members, hey, sell your house, sell your cars, sell all of your furniture, sell your clothes, and invest in Apple stock. Of course, they would have thought he was crazy. A few months later, he would have looked like a genius, right? But he didn't know the future. So why don't you imagine this morning that I know of an investment. Some of you know my investment history. You might go, yeah, right, whatever. (laughs) But imagine, I know an investment that's a lot better than Apple. It's a sure thing, sure thing, I promise. What if I promised you and I said, in fact, I know the future. Well, I do know the future. And you know the future because Jesus has told us the future. And he has also told us how to invest in the future. I want you to read with me Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. They supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, master, your mina has made ten minas more. He said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be an authority over ten cities. Second came, saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him, also, you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, master, your mina, here it is. I put it away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank, and having come, I would have collected it with interest? Then he said to the bystanders, take the minute away from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minutes. They said to him, Master, he already has ten. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away from him. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them 
Bring them here and slay them in my presence. This is a parable. It's a story. Didn't really happen, but with all of Jesus' stories or parables, they are rooted in reality. They're rooted in something in time, space, history. Jesus tells them a parable about a nobleman, his slaves, and his citizens. And really, the focus of the story is on the slaves and what the slaves are to do while the nobleman is away, because the nobleman has received authority for a kingdom, but then he has to make a trip to go and actually receive that kingdom and then come back and reign. And there's an interim of time when the nobleman is going to be gone away from his kingdom, and he's instructing his slaves what should they do while he is away. That's the point of the parable. What should the slaves be doing while the nobleman is away? In the parable... Jesus is the nobleman, and he's about to depart, and he is instructing his followers, his disciples, what they should be doing while he is gone. Now, they would understand this parable in their, in their historical setting, because this is what normally happened. A person would receive authority to reign, but would need to make the pilgrimage to Rome to actually receive the kingdom, maybe get some soldiers to come back and enforce his kingdom, and he'd be gone on a trip. A lot of uncertainties on the trip. It's a long way to Rome. You had to travel by land or by boat. Indefinite amount of time. How long would he be gone? Well, before he left, he would tell his servants, this is what I want you to do, administrating my kingdom while I am away. That nobleman would go to to Rome. He would receive authority for the kingdom officially. Then he would return and establish his authority in that place. Disciples understood that historically. And Jesus is saying, "I'm, I'm that nobleman. And I'm about to depart. I'm going to be crucified. But then I'm going to ascend. I'm going to go to the Father. I'm going to receive a kingdom. But I'm not going to come back immediately. Notice what it says in verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. He's near Jerusalem. He's walking toward Jerusalem. And their assumption is what? He's now going to destroy Rome and establish his own kingdom. That's what we're about. That's why we're going to Jerusalem. And Jesus is instructing his disciples, no, there's going to be an interim of time in which I am gone. I will have ascended to the Father. And it will be your job to administrate my kingdom while I am gone. What should you do? And Jesus says, what you should do is you should invest. He's speaking to his disciples who are about to be left alone, and he says, you should invest. And guess what? Jesus is still gone, and we are still waiting for him to return. And so this parable applies directly to us. What should we do while Jesus is gone and we are waiting for him to return? We should invest. And Jesus is going to give three principles for investment while he is away. The first principle is this. We don't invest to earn eternal life. And we don't invest to earn eternal life. Notice there there are three groups of people, so to speak, in the parable. There's Jesus. He's the nobleman. There are also slaves, and there are his citizens. The slaves are believers. That's the first group. The slaves are believers. They are in the household. They belong to the master. They belong to him. Read with me again. Verse 12. 
A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and he gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I return. These are believers. Because they're in the household of the nobleman. And the moment that you believe, you enter into the household of Jesus, the nobleman. The moment that you believe your status is changed, you are reconciled, you are adopted into God's family, you are justified or declared righteous, you are also redeemed, you are purchased out of slavery to sin and death, and you are enslaved to God. We don't normally like to think of ourselves as slaves, but what Jesus has been pounding home to his disciples is that they are servants, they are slaves, they are not their own. In fact, that is fundamental to human nature. We cannot exist fully independently, right? We are not self-created. We are created by God. In him we live and move and have our being. And what Jesus has been driving home to his disciples is that the highest status you can attain to is the slave of Christ. That's not a derogatory thing for a follower of Christ because you will serve somebody. Right? Bob Dylan said it in the 60s, right? You may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You can serve Satan and sin and yourself and death, or you can serve the perfect benevolent master that is Jesus Christ. The slaves are in the household, they are believers. Jesus is speaking to his followers. But there are also, there's a group there that are, that are listening. Okay, remember right before this, Jesus has invited uh, Zacchaeus to follow him. He's gone to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus has believed he's become a follower of Jesus, a disciple. But there are some who are outside and they're critics and they're saying, why, why does he eat with people like this? They're judgmental. They hate Jesus. That's the second group, the citizens of the country. Read with me chapter 19 and verse 14. But his citizens hated him and they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Uh, In fact, the Jews would have understood this as well because it had happened on more than one occasion that Rome had appointed a ruler and he had left to go get his authority and the Jews had sent a delegation to Rome saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. The man came back and reigned and then he punished the Jews. He brought soldiers from Rome back with him and he crushed any kind of insurrection. Notice what happens to these citizens. Verse 27, it says, These enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. These are unbelievers. These are the Jewish leaders. They're the ones who hate Jesus and say, We will not have this man reign over us. They're the ones who said when Jesus was on trial, We have no king but Caesar. Notice chapter 19, verse 47. Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. They hated him. And so Jesus made a prophecy about them. Chapter 19, verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now... They have been hidden from your eyes for days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation that occurred just a few years later, AD 70, when Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem. 
and along with it, many of the leaders of the nation. They died. They died physically, but also because they had rejected Jesus Christ as their king, there was an eternal sentence against them because God does not coerce people to believe in his son Jesus. God does not coerce. He invites faith. He doesn't force them to believe. If they choose not to and they don't want it, then God gives them their wish. This applies to all those who reject Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in him, that is Jesus, is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That is an eternity separated from God. And notice, these people are not separated from God because they're non-elect. Right? They're separated from God because they choose to disbelieve in the only hope of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. In the parable, these are the citizens, they're the, the, the Jewish leaders, leaders of the nation, but this applies to everyone who chooses to disbelieve in Jesus Christ. Well, of course, we don't want to be a part of that group, right? So how do we move from that group into the group who are the master's slaves? Well, simply put, we believe. We believe. And when we believe, our status has changed. As I said, we are reconciled. We're placed into a right relationship with God. Not because we've earned it, not because we are faithful, but because God is faithful in sending his son, Jesus Christ. And as a new semester begins, this may be the most important decision that you make. Say, God, I recognize that I have rejected your son, Jesus, to this point, but today I believe. I believe that he died for my sins. And having believed, my, my debt can be removed forever and I can now, I can have eternal life. God, I believe. Thank you for Jesus. Maybe this morning you need to make that fresh start in a fresh year and say, God, let me start anew right now. I believe in your son. The moment that you do that, you possess eternal life and you can never lose it. But it also changes your status and it makes you a slave of God. And with that change of status, there are new opportunities and new responsibilities. Hey, that leads to our second point of investing. We invest our lives for someone else. Eternity is secure if you believe in Jesus Christ, but it matters how you live. We invest for someone else. Chapter 19, verse 12. So he said a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself. He would be gone a while. And eventually he would return. And he called ten of his slaves and he gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I get back. You know, I have a a particularly um, generous relative. If somebody wants to borrow something from him, he loans it. He's exceedingly generous. When he makes the loan, he assumes that it won't come back. He understands human nature. He assumes either it's going to come back broken, it's going to come back damaged, or they'll forget and it won't come back at all. I'm going to loan it, but I'm going to assume it's a gift. I mean, he's very, very generous in that way, which has always been remarkable to me because he's very careful with his own stuff. You know, he takes care of his stuff. Stuff's always in really good condition. So whenever I borrow something from him, I'm a little nervous. You know, I, I'm, really, I'm super careful with it and I try to return it in better condition and if I damage it, I replace it. I'm just really careful. I'm actually more careful with his stuff than I am with my own stuff. Why? Because it's not mine. 
Because it is not mine. It doesn't belong to me. The New Testament calls that stewardship. It comes from a Greek word, oikonomia, which means the management of a household. Oikos is a house. It's a home. Stewardship is the management of that household. A steward is one who manages something on behalf of the owner. These slaves don't own anything. Everything that they possess is a gift to them from the master. They are stewards. They are not owners. And what you notice in the Bible is that it pictures God as the owner of all things. And this universe is considered his household. And within his household, he appoints people, stewards, to manage portions of it for him. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 10. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. It's all God's. All of it. Psalm chapter 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. One more. Psalm chapter 89, verse 11. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains. You have founded them, so it all belongs to you. Everything is yours. Now, I noticed some of you were coming in that you were wearing new clothes. Christmas, right? You came sporting a new wardrobe. That's wonderful. Bring it out. Right? Use it. You got a few more cold minutes and then it'll be hot tomorrow, right? So bring it out, right? You know, you look great, but I want to tell you something. Those aren't your clothes. I mean, they're more yours than they are your roommates, but they're not your clothes. They're God's and he gave them to you for a short period of time. They're stewardship. Some of you probably came in and you got a new iPhone. Got the iPhone 5, man. Mom and dad kicked in. It's awesome. You know, it's better than the sermon. You know, you're really enjoying your time here. Quiet, nobody bothering you, and you can figure out all the settings. That's not your phone. That's God's. God owns everything. The car you drive, not yours, God's. The house you live in, not yours, God's. Your retirement account, not yours, God's. The job you have, not yours, God's. Absolutely everything that you think you possess is not yours. It is God's. All belongs to God. You don't even belong to yourself. You're not yours. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. He purchased you out of slavery, now he owns you. Body, soul, spirit, you belong to God. And so everything that you have is a gift from him. It is a stewardship to be invested on his behalf for his glory. That's the second principle of investment. We invest for someone else. We're stewards, we're not owners. Third principle, we are responsible for our investments. Read with me chapter 19, verse 13. And he called 10 of his slaves and he gave them 10 minas and he said to them, do business with this until I come back. Verse 15. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. Uh, Do business. What that means is um, invest my stuff and make a profit for me. Do business with my money. 
And when I come back, you will be evaluated. Each steward, in fact, will be evaluated. Verse 15, again, when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that the slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. How had they invested? And they weren't evaluated based upon how much was given to them. They were evaluated based upon their faithfulness to what had been given them. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, slaves, literally, as slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. The basis of evaluation is not how much you've been given or what you've been given, but have you been faithful with what you've been given? In fact, God makes each and every person absolutely unique. Absolutely unique. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, right before this, the Corinthian believers are getting in an argument because they're comparing leaders and followers. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas. They're comparing, and Paul says, what are we? We're nothing. We're nothing. We're just stewards. One plants and other waters. We've each been given different callings, different jobs, different resources, different personalities. The basis of our evaluation is not what we've been given, but have we been faithful with the things that we've been given? That is how God will evaluate us based upon faithfulness. Second, each unfaithful steward will suffer loss. I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians 13 with me. Keep your place here in Luke. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. Uh, What is the foundation? Well, the foundation is the gospel. It's Christ. Paul says to the Corinthian believers, I'm the one who came to you and I presented the gospel to you. I laid the foundation. That is Christ. And on that foundation, a building was constructed. You are that building. That's the church. It's the body of Christ, the current manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. Paul says, I laid a foundation and then others are building upon it. They continue to share the gospel. They edify others. That's Cephas. That's Apollos. That's others. Okay, everyone is building. That's you. You're not just an observer, a spectator, but you are contributing or not to the establishment and the building of the church or the body of Christ the kingdom of God on earth. Not a physical building, but people. So Paul says, I laid a foundation, another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is only one enduring building, and that is the kingdom of God. That's it. Only one. But everyone builds on it who believes. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But notice, he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. The parable is not about how to get into heaven. The parable is about being a faithful steward. Paul's not writing about how to get into heaven. He's writing about faithful investment in what lasts, that is the kingdom of God, 
or wasting your life. You will build with your life with gold, silver, precious stones. You will invest in the kingdom of God and all that matters and all that lasts is the kingdom of God or you will build your own kingdom. And if you do that, you are building with wood, hay, and straw. And then someday you will stand before Jesus Christ and he will evaluate your life, all of your life, all of your investments, your time, your talents, your money, your opportunities, your relationships. He will evaluate everything. And if you have built for your own kingdom, then in a moment, in a puff of smoke, all that will be gone and you yourself will be saved, yet smelling like smoke. Why did I waste my life? Why did I waste my life? on things that really don't matter. Because someday we'll stand before Jesus Christ and no one will be asking us about our awards, about our achievements, about our titles at work. Hey, tell you students, they won't even ask your grade point. Actually, in a year or two after you graduate, they don't ask your grade point. I'm not saying do poorly in school. Parents, if you're here, hear me correctly. But I'm just saying... It won't last forever. First John chapter 2, verse 28, it says, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. That's written to us, Christians. Notice what he says, little children, let us, the verb says, let us abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Will some believers shrink away in shame at the coming of Jesus Christ when they stand before him? Yes, genuine believers, eternally secure, will in that moment in time before the judgment seat of Christ say, oh man, I wasted my life. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? It says one day God will shake again heavens and earth. And the image is that as he shakes it, everything that is not attached to his kingdom will fly off. And only investments made in the kingdom of God will remain. That is it. That is all that lasts forever. Maybe you're saying to yourself, man, what a downer. Like, this is the New Year's. Let's talk about resolutions and stuff, right? Charge 2013. I'm going to do this and that. Let's think positive thoughts, right? Let's not, let's not talk about evaluation and Well, you know, God gives us a lot of motivations for following him. He gives us carrots and sticks, both, right? Sometimes we're highly motivated by the carrot. Sometimes we need to hear about or receive the stick. When I was growing up, one of my chores was to mow the lawn. So after I figured out that it wasn't just fun to mow the lawn, then a a, a carrot kicked in. My parents said, all right. When you mow the lawn, you're going to receive $5. Okay, this chore is going to come with a reward. But it bugged me because they would just kind of like walk into my room at the last minute and say, you need to mow the lawn now. And, you know, I was a really busy fifth grader and I'm like, I got things to do, right? I'm, I, I got, I've got priorities. I'm, you know, I'm got my fifth grade daytime around, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm mapping things out. So give me like a time frame, mom and dad, you know, within this time you need to mow the lawn so I can manage my affairs, So they did. And you know what happened? I'd go all the way up to the end. I would always procrastinate right to the end. And then, you know, something would come up. It's like a stickball game down at my neighbor Rusty Curry's house. Or it would rain or whatever. I would miss the deadline. And then, you know what? I didn't get paid. I still had to mow the lawn. But I didn't get my five bucks. I lost the opportunity 
to enjoy that reward. I've lost that opportunity. So if I had been super mature, I would have said, you know, mom, dad, I just love you so much. And I'm so grateful I have a room in your house. I love you. Just let me mow the lawn and don't pay me, right? <laughs> if I'd been really mature, I would have just constantly been motivated out of love and gratitude. And you know, that really is the highest motivation, even in our relationship with God, just because we love him. He doesn't owe us anything. He's already given us eternal life for heaven's sake, right? But sometimes we also need to learn the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, and be reminded when we make foolish decisions and we invest in our own kingdom and our own pleasure, it doesn't last, and there are consequences on this earth. That's discipline, and we need to hear about it because it's true. And we need to hear that someday there will be an evaluation when we stand before Jesus Christ. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And we will be evaluated because it's true. And he tells us the future. He says, I can tell you what will last at that moment. And it is faithfulness to use the resources you've been given. I won't compare you to one another. I will just say, this is what I gave to you. Those resources, did you invest them for things that last forever? So that I can turn around and reward you. See, each unfaithful steward will suffer loss, but each faithful steward will be rewarded. Turn back with me again to Luke chapter 19 and verse 16. Luke chapter 19, verse 16. One of the things we need to understand about this parable is that it's not about sacrifice. This parable is not a call to sacrifice. Tracking with me? God isn't stingy. God is not stingy. God is extravagantly generous. God loves to give. God loves to reward. He loves to hand us resources that don't belong to us, empower us through his spirit to honor him. And as we walk faithfully in dependence upon him and do honor him, then he turns around and rewards us for what he did through us, through his spirit and the gifts that he gave. This is not a parable about sacrifice. You cannot outgive God and he is not stingy. Notice chapter 19, verse 16. The first slave appeared saying, Master, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Your minna master has made five minas. And he said to him also, You are to be over five cities. What's going on here? Well, a minna was worth a hundred days wages. In today's terms, um, Average wages in the United States would be about $12,000. Okay? $12,000. The first slave invests that $12,000 and gets a tenfold increase. In other words, $120,000. So, on a $12,000 investment, the master of this kingdom has earned through his slave $120,000. And he turns around and how does he reward him? He gives him 10 cities. what's the value of $120,000 versus 10 cities? Do you you see what's going on here? 
the reward is extravagant. And apparently, according to the, the end of the parable, that slave actually gets to keep the original minna, the 10,000 plus the 120,000 that he earns and the 10 cities that he got. He, he gets it all. He gets absolutely everything. And God is not stingy in his rewards. God owns the entire universe. He can just give and give and give and then make some more stuff and give it away. The master is not stingy. God is not stingy. He longs to reward. And so he gives it all away. What are God's rewards? Sarah says, what does God have to give us anyway that we would value? He does own everything, right? He does own quite a lot. Let's look at it. There are three categories, I think, of reward. The first is honor. It's approval. He gathers all ten slaves to himself, and then he takes that first slave, and he evaluates, he listens. That slave was faithful with that minute and invested that minute, and he says to that slave in front of all the other slaves, well done. Well done. Another parable, Jesus puts it like this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Someday we will stand before Jesus Christ and all the host of heaven will be around. And Jesus wants to say to us, well done. Well done. I will tell you, that motivates me. At that point in time, only the approval and the applause of Jesus Christ will matter to me. And to stand before him and have him say to me, Brian, well done. You know, I think that's what's starting to happen in Job's life when the host is gathered together. Have you considered my servant Job? And Job does walk faithfully even through suffering. I imagine that Job entered into the presence of his master and he heard, well done, well done, well done. And I can just imagine all the host of heaven applauding and clapping, well done, well done. You lived well, you were wise. You weren't deceived by the world. You knew what mattered, you invested. Even when everyone told you you were a fool and you were saying, no, no, invest in what matters. Buy into this. And they were mocking you and they were even persecuting you. You said, no, I know what matters and I will live for that. Well done. The praise of heaven. That is in store for us. Second, authority. This slave receives 10 cities, and we say, well, that's, that's a parable, right? <laughs> it's a parable, but it's rooted in reality. Because someday Jesus Christ is going to return, and he's going to establish his kingdom on earth, and he's going to need to run it. He's going to administrate his universe. How is he going to do so? Through men and women. He will administrate his universe. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, Jesus is speaking to the church in Thyatira. He says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And then Jesus quotes to the church in Thyatira, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is a psalm that was given to God's Messiah, that is given to Jesus. Jesus, you will rule over all the nations. Jesus turns around and he quotes Psalm chapter 2 to us. You will rule and reign. You will administrate the kingdom of God alongside of Jesus Christ. You will have meaningful labor that is fulfilling and satisfying, as in when Adam and Eve first went into the garden and there weren't thorns and thistles, but there was fruit, there was abundance, there was joy, working with one another, listening to God and seeing the fruit of their labors, genuinely satisfying, fulfilling labor in the kingdom of God. 
And then third, fulfillment. Why were you created? That's a big question. You should stop and think about that once in a while. Why are you here? Why were you created? Created ultimately to be in relationship with God and to to worship him. To proclaim his worth. And one of the ways that rewards are frequently spoken of is as crowns. Let me tie this together for you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says, In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Okay, notice he says, Paul, Paul says, this isn't just for me, but everyone who loved the appearing of Jesus, who lived waiting for that day when they would stand in front of Jesus Christ. Everyone who lived for that, who loved the appearing of Jesus, will receive the crown of righteousness. And we say to ourselves, well, I don't own any crowns right now, and I'm not even going to go out and buy any crowns. What does a crown do for me? What does a crown do? What's the point? Well, certainly it represents wealth and it represents authority, but it also represents worship. Revelation chapter four, says the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and they will worship him who lives forever and ever. And what will they do with their crowns? They're not going to wear them around and show them off and compare their crowns. They're going to take them and they're just going to throw them at the feet of him who is and was and will be forever, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the ruler of the universe, the owner of all, they will be bowing before him and they will just be worshiping him. They will have fulfilled the design of their lives. They will have fulfillment. And all of these rewards that God offers, though we don't completely understand them now, they endure, they last. When God shakes heaven and earth, they remain. They don't fly off. They're not burned up. They are enduring. And so the only wise way to live is to invest all of our life in the kingdom of God. Absolutely everything that you possess. So how do we invest? Well, the next three weeks, we're going to talk about three specific areas. Investing our talents, our skills, our abilities. Second, investing our wealth, our, our, our money, but also our material possessions. And then third, investing our time and our opportunities. Specifically this morning, I want to give you a couple of applications. How do we invest? How do we take what we thought about this morning and apply it? Well, first, and very specifically, you know, I always like to give you guys a, a concrete application. I don't like walking away without a step that we can take to actualize these things in our lives. So you notice you were given a little card on the way in. On one side, it says, Guide to Growing in Grace. This is not a formula for spiritual maturity. Please hear me. It's not a formula for spiritual maturity. It's a sketch. It's an outline. It's a template. It's a blueprint. It's a way of looking holistically at your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. A disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, is maturing in these areas. Vision for life. Why am I here? And what is my part, my role in the kingdom? Knowledge of God, truth, so that I worship him as he is. Character that reflects the personality of Jesus Christ. Skills for wise living. I actualize in the use of my time and my money and my resources, my relationships, 
they are relationships of deep and abiding love for God and love for others, my Christian friends and the non-believers around me that I genuinely and deeply love them. This is just a, a picture. It's a template of what it looks like to be a maturing disciple of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice on the bottom right-hand corner, there is a, a website. And that's on our, our website. All of these resources that we have placed under each one, there's a hyperlink for it. So you can go and you can take an actual step. Okay, staff has begun to compile resources. There are just about five underneath each one. But we're just going to load it. We're just going to load it. So as you're thinking to yourself, God's speaking to you, you're saying, you know, I really need to grow in this area of character. You go to the website, click and download a study we've written or a book or connect to a talk and say, let me focus on that area so that I can invest all of life and I can grow in all of life as a steward of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the first thing, very practical. Second, notice on the back side, there's a little thing for our conference next week, Grace 360, which is going to be looking at this topic of how do we grow as followers and stewards of the resources that we have, 360, in every area of life. A very practical, concrete step. You can go on the website this afternoon, you can sign up, and there'll be some area of life that is addressed that is applicable to where you are in your relationship with Christ. Third, I want to encourage you Don't delay, if you are not connected with other believers, get in a group where you have accountability and you pray for one another and you study the word because we are not designed to walk through life on our own. We need one another constantly encouraging one another to finish the race well, to invest well. When we see one another drifting from the path and living for things that don't matter, we need friends who love us enough, who know us well enough, who can say, hey, That's not a wise decision. Remember, we'll stand before Jesus Christ. Don't you want to hear him say, well done? I cannot encourage you enough. Make sure you get connected. An adult Bible fellowship, a home church group, men's and women's Bible studies. We've got growth groups, Doulos. There are parachurch ministries on campus. There are all kinds of resources that God has given in this town for you to connect and go deep. Let me encourage you, don't miss out. Don't miss out on that. Don't delay a few weeks. Set the pattern for your semester right now. And as we close, let me remind you of one more parable that Jesus told about investing. Real simple parable. It's actually just, it was just two sentences. He describes a man who's walking through a field. This man's walking through a field and all of a sudden he just, he stumbles upon a treasure. We, he doesn't tell us, you know, does he step in a hole and there's a bag of gold or does he lift a rock? Or does he look inside a cave? Not sure, but it's this enormously valuable treasure. And so he buries it again. He runs back to his house. He sells everything. Sells the farm just so that he can purchase that field because he knows within that field there's wealth beyond anything he's ever possessed before. The point of the parable is simply this you have stumbled upon great wealth. It's called the kingdom of God. Now invest all that you have, all of your time, all of your talents, all of your money, all that you are, all that you can do. Invest it in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that we would be wise. That we would discern the things that really matter, the things that last forever, and that we would give all, not holding back, recognizing you are not stingy. This is really not sacrifice because you are offering us so much more than we could possibly give. I pray, Father, that you would inform our our minds and our hearts this week and draw us passionately to investing in your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you.
Invest well. We'll see you next week.